But I invite you as we do each week to open your Bibles in the few minutes that we have left. I, I want to look at a specific story that God has just uh, weighed on my heart for the last several weeks. It's in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, how God shows up for the vulnerable. So if you have a Bible, go on and open up to Genesis 16. If you need a Bible, uh, just uh, slip up a hand. We'll have some people walk around and they can put a Bible in your hand uh, so you could follow along. If you don't have a Bible at home, we invite you to take that as a gift from us. It is the most valuable, precious gift that you can be given apart from Jesus himself. So um, Genesis 16 so to understand this story, uh, we got to go back uh, uh, really um, to the beginning, but we go to a world at the, that we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creating the world, uh, this beautiful, good, flourishing world that he invites humanity to live in intimacy with him and in oneness with each other. For that everything is as it should be, shalom, peace, wholeness, this flourishing life. Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, the abundance of God available for all people. Naked and unashamed, vulnerable, known, loved, seen. And then we see Genesis chapter 3, man and woman turning their back on God, disobeying him, and therefore turning against one another, and sin and brokenness invade this beautiful world. And at first it infects them individually and they go into hiding and begin to live a life of fear and shame and guilt, of hiding and blaming the world that we all exist in. And individually, their, their world is torn apart, but then they turn against one another, and sin doesn't just affect them as individuals, but as a couple, and not just as a couple, but sin begins to invade the family unit and tear the family apart in violence and strife and jealousy and striving. And then from the family out into the community and from the community out to the whole world, defined by brokenness and selfishness. And out of this chaotic, desperate world, a world that in Genesis chapter 6, God looks at and says that the, every intent of every human heart was only evil all of the time. Out of the brokenness of that world, a world that I don't think we have to look too far of to find ourselves in even today, God called forth a family. A man and a woman named Abram and Sarai, Genesis chapter 12 or 11, God calls them to, to leave the pagan world of their, of their family and to begin a new family with God. And God calls them and gives them a promise and says that I bless you, and not just I bless you, but I bless you so that you will be a blessing. And in Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham and Sarai, I'm going to lead you into a land. And through your family line, through your seed, Abram, I'm going to bless all of the families, all the people, all the nations of the world. And so Abram and Sarai, God's chosen couple that will become a chosen people, chosen by God, that the blessing of God could flow through their, them and their family out to the rest of the world. But it's hard to, to live 
waiting for that promise to come to pass. And there was one problem, if we know, as we know from the, the Bible, Sarai, one of the first things we learn from, about her is that she's barren. She can't have kids. And in that land, kids was everything. Kids were the, the, the picture, the proof of God's blessing. And so God promises a blessing on a family that can't be blessed unless God does something miraculous. But they choose to trust God. But time passes, and Sarai still doesn't have any children. At one point, they end up in Egypt uh, because there's a famine in the land, and they come out of Egypt even more wealthy, blessed by God materially, but there's still no child. God comes to Abram and makes a covenant with him, points to the sky and says, Abram, one day your descendants will be as vast as the stars in the heaven. And yet years pass, and there is still no child. And so they decide to take matters into their own hands. And we begin in Genesis chapter 16 with this painful phrase. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Where was the blessing of God? They were called out of the brokenness of this world to be a blessing to this world, that God could fulfill his promises, that God could redeem the brokenness of Eden, that God could again restore shalom, that God could again take his people to extend his goodness out to the ends of the world, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. That was God's promise to Abram from the beginning, and it hadn't happened yet. I want us to feel the angst of that. And so, but it tell, we, we learned that, that Sarai had a female Egyptian servant or slave that they somehow acquired during their time in Egypt, whose name was Hagar. On a side note, one of the things that's so powerful about the Bible is that God is constantly in the business of rehumanizing the dehumanized. See, for a slave, there could, they, in that culture, in any culture, that's not a person, that's a piece of property. That's somebody who is owned for the use of their master. And yet, to God, this isn't just a slave, it's not a piece of property. It's a woman who has a name. And the meaning of her name means forsaken. And that was her identity. A woman forsaken by her family, by her country, and now by her master. Treated as a commodity, bought and sold with no voice or option, vulnerable and fatherless. The Sarai says uh, to Abram, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. A subtle turn on what God has actually promised them. Go in to my servant, and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. It's interesting throughout this whole chapter, the number of parallels back to Genesis 2 and 3. Just as Adam listened to the voice of Eve in Genesis 3, Abram listens to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. So now she's a slave bride. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. 
That word contempt means to make small or insignificant, to dishonor or to consider of little account. Well, Sarai does not like this. And so she says to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Abram, again, echoing the silence or the passivity of Adam. You, I don't want to deal with it. You deal with it. And so Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And so Hagar flees into the wilderness. So we have this abused, desperate, pregnant slave woman fleeing the unjust treatment of her master and finds herself alone in the wilderness. And so the question becomes, how does God show up for the vulnerable? Well, Genesis 16, 7 significant truth in itself that God does show up. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that was beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She answered, I'm running away. I am fleeing, seeking refuge from my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. It's actually the first mention of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. It's the messenger of God. And from this point on, the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, will show up in multiple occurrences. Most of the time when, they, when the angel, the messenger of the Lord shows up, at first it's mistaken to just be a human. And at some point during the account, you discover that it's not just a human, but it's actually God himself in human form. The first appearance of God himself in human form is to this vulnerable, scared woman in the wilderness. Now, what does God do? He finds her, and he calls her by name, and he sees her. She's Hagar, but she's also Hagar, slave of Sarai. I know your situation. I know your circumstance, God is saying to her. And he offers her a hope and a future. But first, he asks her a question. Where are you going? And by asking her a question, he's actually giving her a voice. Now notice who speaks in the first part of this story. Abram has a voice. He speaks. He makes choices, even if his choice is just to be passive. Sarai, she has a voice, she speaks, she makes decisions and choices, but Hagar is silent. She has no voice. Her choice doesn't matter. The only decision she makes is to run away. And notice who else doesn't speak in the first part of the story. God. God is silent. He isn't consulted. He isn't listened to. He isn't given a voice. And how different would this story have been if Hagar was given a voice, if she was treated as a person instead of as an object? 
How different would this story have gone if God had been consulted, if he was given space to speak? But in the second part of this story, notice who does speak. God has a voice in the second part of the story. He speaks. But unlike Abram and Sarai, when God speaks, he actually asks Hagar a question. He calls her by name. He gives her a voice. He sees this powerless slave as a person. And he knows the answer to her question. God's not like, you know, wait, where are you going? But just like Adam in the garden, when God shows up and says, Adam, where are you? <clears throat> He's giving a, a chance to respond. Or to Cain, where is your brother? But Hagar's actually the first person that God asks a question to that she just answers directly and honestly. Adam and Cain both deferred and, 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 uh, and skirted the issue. But Hagar answers honestly, I'm running away. Now it's interesting that God says for her to go back, to go back into her pain, to go back into this place of abuse. And that is not something that we can place on every one of our stories. But in this story, as we step into that circumstance, God is actually providing for Hagar in her forsaken place. He's actually giving her a home in a wilderness where she most surely would have been killed. And he tells her though, this pain is not the end of your story. I have bigger plans for you and I will be with you in the pain. I will surely multiply your offspring. It actually echoes the words of God over Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. Be fruitful and multiply. To Noah, be fruitful and multiply. The hope of the world, God speaks into this vulnerable Woman. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers, or in opposition to all of his brothers, or depending on the translation, to the east of all of his brothers. There's a lot of things that it can mean. And this has actually been a greatly misunderstood passage. In fact, I had a conversation a couple weeks ago after church uh, with um, a young a family about this specific passage because it's been used to explain the turmoil going on in the Middle East for generations and centuries and even up to the current crisis and violence going on in Gaza today. It's often viewed as proof of God's curse against the descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs, in comparison to God's blessing on the children of Isaac, the Israelites. In fact, if you go online, you can quickly find many blogs and sermons sharing how this passage explains why the Arabs are a violent people group bent on terrorism today. That it's just in their genes, it's in their DNA. God spoke it into them here in Genesis chapter 16. But is that really what's happening here? What is actually God saying and doing? And why does that matter? And listen to me. 
It matters because the way we understand Scripture affects how we think about God and how we think about people. And how we think about people and how we think about God affects how we treat people and how we respond to this world. What you think about Scripture matters. And so it matters that we go back and read our Bible and see what it actually has to say instead of trying to stitch pieces of Sunday school answers together into shallow responses to a broken world. This is why bad theology is so dangerous. I was on a webinar this past Saturday with believers. I just was, had the opportunity to sit and, and listen to believers all over the world uh, and some pastors in, in Gaza and Palestine. Uh, talking about the situation and one of the pastors that was speaking said he said uh, you only have to twist the cross to get a swastika and his point was that our bad theology can lead us to some horrific responses and as we stand together on stand Sunday for the vulnerable and the orphan for the broken and the lost in this world, we have to let the Bible inform our answers. And we have to look to Jesus to see how he responds. But we can go all the way back to the beginning. What does God do here? And so let me just step out of that before I get too deep into it. And I will go on to say, I'm gonna just give a couple of things real fast. And I know we're coming to the close of our time. I have wrestled with this for a while. You know, we have very close personal friends in Israel and Palestine. We as a church, Grace Monroe and the Grace Family of Churches has done, uh, has worked alongside of people for decades now in the Holy Land. Uh, we have trips lined up to go this spring on Epic uh, into Israel and Palestine. And we are committed to, as we say, mobilizing Jesus movements in the Muslim world that we want to show up the way that God shows up for people that God loves because we believe that God loves all people. And we are just as committed now as we've ever been. And for the last month, which the, the uh, atrocities and the violence happening in the Middle East didn't start a month ago, but they got highlighted a month ago with a horrific loss of 1,400 Israeli lives. But even since that time, it's a, up to a, over 11,000 uh, Palestinians have been killed in Gaza. Over 4,000 of them are children. Currently right now, there's a hospital in Gaza uh, that is manually in, uh, um, respirating uh, uh, premature uh, NICU babies because there is no power in those hospitals. There's uh, Christian brothers and sisters that are easily forgotten in the middle of this conflict. Right now, there's approximately 1,000 uh, Gazan uh, Palestinian Christians that are huddled together in a church uh, in the middle of Gaza trying to seek refuge. Uh, we have a pastor uh, contact Hanum Assad, who is a pastor over there, um, and he is close friends with uh, actually a grace pastor who lives outside of Jerusalem now named Kenny, um, Kenny Schmidt, and um, they are trying to provide meals 
uh, and, and uh, supplies to these Christians that are sheltering together there at this church. Uh, a week and a half ago, um, a bomb was dropped on that church that killed 18 members of their congregation. And I have a picture um, that, um, of those that were killed when that bomb was dropped. And so we ask this question, what is our response? And we have to think higher and bigger than the political discourse and the military solutions offered by this world. For a lost world, their highest hope is politics and the military. We have a higher hope and therefore we have a higher calling. And we see a God that shows up in the brokenness and so because uh, we know that right now there's about a thousand believers sheltered together and we have a relationship there, we do feel like, uh, and go to the next slide, uh, we do feel like the, um, uh, the right response for us as a church, um, one is we wanna show up as soon as we get a chance uh, and there aren't flights currently out of Atlanta into uh, Tel Aviv, we want to go hug the, the necks of our, our friends and partners over there in the Middle East and that they know they're not alone. But right now there's an immediate need. And so this is what I'm gonna ask you to respond to. And that is that there is, that there is a, a terrible lack of resources for Gaza. We're gonna wait one second on the music. Uh, Stalls was on the phone with Hannah, uh, Pastor Hannah in Palestine. Um, and I asked him to just share a minute um, about how we're responding as a Grace family. And so uh, we show that video of stalls real fast. Hey, Grace family. I'm John Stallsmith, the lead pastor at Grace Snellville. And if you are like me, you have been watching the headlines coming out of Israel and Gaza specifically with deep grief and great interest, of course, on October 7th when Hamas invaded Israel, 1,400 Israelis dead, 240 plus hostages. Israel retaliated and now have bombed Gaza to a great toll, a loss of human life, especially among civilians. All of it is heartbreaking and we're asking the question, God, how can we help? And so over the last month, I've been on the phone, we've all been talking as lead pastors and elders across the Grace family about what ways we might be a blessing in the name of Jesus in the midst of a horrible, horrible conflict. And some of our closest friends, we've supported them from, for years and years. Uh, we were in each other's weddings. They live just outside of Jerusalem, and they recommended that I get in touch with a pastor named Hannah Massad. Now, he is a Gazan, and he helped to start the Baptist church in Gaza. Um, they experienced some severe persecution in 2006. The Bible Society they were leading was bombed. In 2007, one of their staff was kidnapped uh, for following Jesus, and they found his body uh, 10 days later. So really, really difficult stuff. But he has maintained connections there. Even though they moved out of Gaza, he still returns three or four times a year pastors the community there. In addition to that, uh, they run a Sunday Zoom gathering with believers where they pray 
and he said they've been doing that pretty regularly. Of course, the last few weeks that's been disrupted because of the power outages and the IT problems and everything else. And so I, I spoke with Pastor Hannah, and I said, what can we do to help? And he said, there are about 900 Christians in Gaza right now, and like all the people in Gaza struggling with food, water, basic necessities. And they can get a meal to those Christians for about $5 per person. Uh, they've already done one of these distributions, but if you do the math, essentially we could help feed all the Christians in Gaza for a day with about $5,000. When I shared this possibility with the other lead pastors, we all felt like reaching out to support the Christians in the midst of the conflict would be the wisest course of action. In fact, it reminds me of the scene in Corinthians when Paul is gathering a collection to send down to the believers in Jerusalem in the midst of the famine. Similar sort of thing. We have brothers and sisters in crisis, and this is an opportunity for us to be able to give. And when I was asking Pastor Hannah about the situation of the people on the ground, um, I was surprised. He actually broke down crying, just describing it. Not not in any manipulative way, just the simple, overwhelming grief of people in extreme hardship can't reach food, basic necessities, and all the rest. And so this is an invitation to you. If you have $5, $10, $100, whatever the case may be, uh, but we are going to try to gather funds for food and mercy relief for the Christian community in Gaza. We believe we have a trustworthy, proven partner and Pastor Hannah, and we will keep you updated about what we are able to do as a family. Thank you so much for listening, and God bless you. So like I said, I know there's a lot uh, that we are asking for you to pray about. And, and again, there, no pressure uh, to do everything. We're just asking you to do something. Um, and there are ways, uh, there are times that the, the, bro the, the brokenness of this world feels overwhelming. And there are too many needs in the world to even begin to name. But we are called to respond to the needs in front of us. And we have relationships in Palestine, so this need hits close to home. And there are vulnerable children across the street. And so we're asking questions, God, how are we supposed to respond in our own backyard? And so at a minimum, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider uh, giving to provide immediate relief for our Gazan brothers and sisters um, and, uh, and then secondly, uh, to, as a family, uh, to take home an ornament to help provide Christmas for a child here in Walton County. Um, the last thing I want to say, I didn't even get into Ishmael. Read Ish that passage. Uh, I'd say it every week. Way more important than anything I have to say is what God wants to speak to you through his word. Read Genesis 16 and 17. Read it from the perspective of a scared, uh, uh, forsaken, pregnant young woman and how she responds to what she hears God saying and ask the question, does this sound like God cursed a child or God blessed a child? How did God show up in the brokenness uh, that, um, and, and for the vulnerable? And then the last thing is this. By saying that we are responding in grief and compassion to those in Palestine and Gaza is not saying that we are anti-Israel. And to say that we are for those who are hurting is not to say that we are pro-Hamas. Somehow in our, our 
awful news cycle of political nonsense uh, is, in, is to, to be with one is to be against another. As followers of Jesus, we believe that God, that Jesus died for the sins of the world, that all people would know the love of their father and that from the beginning, God has shown up for the broken and the oppressed and the lost and the hurting, just like he showed up for you and for me. And so each week as we take communion, what we remember is Jesus who broke his body, the sacri- broke the bread and said, this is my body, the sacrificial offering of true love. That love wasn't an affectionate feeling, love was the giving of life. And he took that cup and said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take, eat, and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So as we take communion, it is a response to what God in heaven has done for us as a good father. But it is also a call for us as sons and daughters to go into this world and represent the heart of a God who shows up for the forsaken, the forgotten, and the vulnerable. And so we're going to sing this song. We're going to close in worship. I invite you to respond if you want to get on your knees to pray and take communion. But most importantly, to ask God, God, what are you inviting me into? How do you want me to respond? And so we worship God together.